Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that digs up all sorts of information about the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories with David Campbell, including a prediction that few Aussies will own their own cars by 2050. Rob Fraser gives us a reason to drive to Western Australia, and then he gives us a road test of a vehicle to do it in. We have some motoring minutes, and Brian Smith joins us again for some quirky news. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au, or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our website page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. Economic modelling says innovative transport systems led by electric and automated vehicles will generate $62 billion in Australia. Change is coming and by 2050 you may be in the minority if you own a car, says a new report by a global management consulting firm. According to the study, Australia is set to reap billions of dollars in extra productivity via the adoption of new mobility as private vehicle ownership dries up. The report says that electric and autonomous vehicles, self-driving robo-taxis, ride and car sharing and a wider range of public transport options will negate the need for personal vehicles. The report, titled The Economic Benefits of New Mobility for Australia, states that 69% of Australian household transport costs in 2017 were eaten up by private car ownership. This figure is forecast to drop to 40% by 2030 and just 5% in 2050 if existing legal and infrastructure barriers are overcome. But other factors also need to be considered. If your vehicle becomes your main battery storage unit that can run your house in peak times and be charged up at the local supermarket, then that might encourage private ownership. The Honda Motor Company is pumping more marketing dollars into competitive video gaming to protect its status as the dominant car maker among young first-time buyers. The Japanese auto giant is becoming the official automaker of Riot Games League of Legends, one of North America's biggest online leagues. Honda's goal is to meet young customers on their own terms. The global esports audience is more than 450 million people. That group is very young, tech-savvy consumers who don't interact with marketing in the same way as their older peers. They're also a valuable commodity in the automotive world. Millennials and Gen Z are the only generations increasing their share of car sales right now, and Honda is well-positioned with those groups. Its Civic and Accord models are the top-selling vehicles for first-time buyers, according to the company. Hyundai Motorsport has begun work on an electric race car, heralding a new era of motorsport for the company. The car, which has been designed and built at the company's racing headquarters in Germany, will break cover for the first time on the media day of the Frankfurt Motor Show in September. The move to electric continues the growth of Hyundai Motorsport, which has become well established in rallying and circuit racing since its inception in 2012. The first glimpses of the new car can be seen in videos published on Hyundai's motorsport social media channels, offering a hint of what is to come at the official unveiling. 
more airbags may not be better. A recently released study concluded that knee airbags didn't significantly reduce the risk of injury in real-world crashes, and test data may show that the supplemental airbags may have increased injury rates in certain crashes. Crash data was analysed from 14 US states involving vehicles with and without knee airbags and concluded that knee airbags reduce the overall risk of injury from 7.9% to 7.4%, which the IIHS concluded wasn't statistically significant. Many automakers, including General Motors and Toyota, have installed driver-side knee airbags on most of their new models for several years. In the US, federal officials have told Tesla to stop claiming its Model 3 electric sedan achieved the lowest probability of injury of any car they've tested. Last year, lawyers for the NHTSA told Tesla to remove language from its website that claimed the Model 3 had the lowest probability of injury of all cars the safety agency has ever tested. Lawmakers for Tesla shot back two weeks later and defended the company's safety claims and said that the public data for crash tests led the company to conclude that the Model 3 statements were statistically proven. The disputed blog by Tesla is still active on the company's page. A team of researchers from Tsinghua University in China has developed a self-driving bicycle outfitted with artificial intelligence which navigates using a neuromorphic chip. The bicycle uses the chip to respond to vocal commands, recognize their surroundings, evade obstacles and maintain balance. Researchers hope ultimately to combine the training process with the in-the-moment execution so the bicycle can actually learn as it goes. And that has been the news. What do you buy if you have a family of five and always seem to take a lot of luggage and gear with you? Rob Fraser has a left-field alternative. Most cars today are designed more for four people rather than five. The people-mover-style wagons have improved significantly over the last few years, like the Kia Carnival, but some can be expensive. This week, I've driven something a little bit different. A Toyota Hiace long-wheelbase crew van. Now, I would never have recommended the previous model for a family, but the new Hiace is chalk and cheese. It has many of the expected safety features and comfort features of a people mover, not all though, but has the overriding quality of enormous space for passengers and luggage. It's easy to get into and out of, has a smooth and relatively quiet ride, has some of the latest features, and in a bizarre reverse way is kind of cool. The biggest factor is that for around $41,000 plus the usual costs, it's actually excellent value. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, it's Oz Roma time. Time to think about how we can travel around this great country of ours and enjoy the attractions. Uh, maybe that's just a bit of a commercial word. Enjoy the nature of that, both the natural nature, if I may say that, but also just the character as well. And who better to do that than Rob Fraser? Rob, I want to talk to you about the West Australia Wildflower Festival. That's extensive, isn't it? Look, it is. It covers the entire state and very much over a few months. And it's more a, a natural thing rather than an organised festival. I love it. Isn't it great that 
I don't mind someone putting together something and I can see a lot in it a short time. It's a bit like road testing cars, really, isn't it? You get it, you look at it, and then you pass it on. But this one, what it covers, what sort of dimensions are there to me? How many species are there? I had to actually look this up myself. And, and there's, there's more than, across the WA, there's more than 12,000 species. And they reckon that about 60% of those are found nowhere else in the world. So it really is a unique experience. Oh, it reminds me of the book by, who's that writer? Oh, Bill Bryson, Down Under. He wrote of travelling around this great continent, looking at the flora and fauna that is unique to our land, particularly in Western Australia, which seems to have so many species, as you say, that are just in this part of the world and nowhere else. When does the festival start? Around the beginning of spring? Because... WA is so large and it covers so many different climatic regions, I guess you'd say. It's already started up in the north, in the Pilbara-type region and further north. You know, the spring flowers have started to come because it is the dry season up there and it's it's quite warm. So it's one of those things where you can actually travel down the west coast or down the inland and, and follow the flowers as you come down all the way from, I guess, July through to October, November, December, right down on the southwest coast. It's lovely because it's not one of those contiki rush tours. Half an hour at the Louvre, rush to the Eiffel Tower in the afternoon, can't spend much time, but you can take a 100 photos, most of them selfies, which show very little of the surrounding. All that sort of rush. The whole idea epitomised by the grey nomad, but doesn't have to be just uh, retired people, but that whole idea of gently going through, perhaps sitting around a campfire at night and reading a book on just some of the flowers that are around, I could do that. If there's anything to try and slow me down, I think this might be it. Well, yes. Look, I've been over there in the spring, and I have actually travelled part of the WA coastline as well, and, and it's it's not that you actually go somewhere to see flowers. It's everywhere you drive. You're driving along, and just you're looking at the side of the road, and there is just fields of wildflowers blooming everywhere, and the colours are spectacular. And, and as you drive, you see all these different species and all these different types of flowers, and it's... It's just this this sort of like sensory overload of just colour and and it's all natural. It all just occurs naturally throughout the countryside. A couple of tips there. Take nothing but photos. Picking wildflowers is illegal and can attract a $2,000 fine. You should respect private property and obviously don't trespass. The other thing is there's a lot of canola crops over there, but they're concerned about the prevention. Uh, well, they're concerned so as to not spread disease. So you shouldn't really wander into a canola field. You may pick something up or drop something off that may not be good to them. You would uh, have to drive across the uh, Nullarbor, is that as arduous a task as it used to be? No, not at all. In the past, it was actually, I mean, I've done it a few times. In the past, it was actually a very long trip with very little facilities or infrastructure in between. These days, you've got those roadside stops there and you can camp quite easily and there's there's a lot of facilities. It's still a long way, mind you. It, you know, it's, I can't remember exactly how many kilometres, but, you know, say 1,300 kilometres. Mm. It's, it's still a long hike, but it's, uh, it's a lot easier these days than it was, say, 20 years ago. And you really ought to think about just what it takes to drive, particularly if you're towing a caravan or something, to, to think about some of the preventative things that you might do. With always, when you're travelling like that, the daily checkovers, your caravan in your car is essential. Just the simple things like the fact that you're, you're hooked up properly, your brakes are working, your oil's fine in your car, the water's topped up. 
all those little things, you know, your brake lights are working, just a daily check over. Just one comment you're making earlier, a, a lot of people who go to WA, they actually come in through the top, they go to the broom type region through the winter mm-hmm. or our southern winter. So they sort of go across the top from, you know, Darwin across and then scroll down the, the west coast or the inland west following the flowers down. And so, Rob, if I want a little bit more information, where do I go? Just head across to osroma.com.au and uh, this and a whole pile of other information to help you travel will be there for you. Lovely stuff. Thanks very much. You're listening to Overdrive. Australians might be familiar with the Chinese Great Wall Utes. Great Wall also has another brand. It's named Havel. They sell a range of SUVs in Australia and David Brown has been testing their latest. Haval's latest model is an update of their large H9 seven-seat SUV. The previous model wasn't bad, but needed a few refinements. The latest model is certainly better. It has a modest-sized 2-litre four-cylinder petrol engine with a surprising 180 kilowatts, coupled to an 8-speed gearbox with full four-wheel drive. Plenty of safety and comfort features, the -the top-of-the-line Ultra even has a massage function in the front seats. The base model is $42,000 and the Ultra is $47,000, both drive away. The Chinese are doing what the Japanese did 30 or more years ago, only in a quicker time frame. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, let's do a road test, uh, particularly for the out and about. And who better to do that than Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au. Rob, what have you been testing? I just recently drove the latest VW Crafter van. With They've actually added their four motion system to it to make it a, an all-wheel drive van, if you like. Is this a bit like the old Combi, but modern? It's a size above the Combi. So it has the sort of decking out in the back. Does it have a, a stove and things? The particular one I drove was a, a shell, hmm. but they use them, and a lot of people do them use them for do-it-yourself type camper vans, and there are a number of manufacturers who also use them for the camper vans as well. So could I specify what I want? I, I could personalise it with a, an aftermarket manufacturer? Look, it's possible. What you tend to find with the likes of those manufacturers is they, they get the van and they come up with two or three different designs and they'll, they'll build those because it gives them economy of scale and all that type of stuff. And, and for the most part, they're pretty good at designing the interior to get the maximum effectiveness out of it. Although there is a strong element of the market that like to do it themselves. Mm. There's certainly a, an option for people to do that, you know, to build it themselves. The thing I liked about the crafter is when you're driving a number of these sort of vans, you hop in them and you think, oh, I can't wait to get out of this thing. I drove the crafter for a week. I did a lot of kilometres in it because I was up and back down to Sydney quite a few times. And apart from the minor aspect of me having exceptionally long legs and therefore a slightly different angle onto the accelerator, it was unbelievably comfortable. Drove like a larger car and it just cruised along. I really enjoyed it. I love I could see myself sitting in this and driving for days and days and days touring around Australia in it. You're not sitting up like a truck. Well, you're sitting more upright than you are in a car, but you're not sitting up like a truck, no. And the other thing that was really impressive about it was the fact that it has, I mean, you climb up into it, so it's it's more than a combi van or a high ace van or an I-load or something like that. So it is that next level up. So you do climb up into it, but you don't hit your head, which you do on a lot of vehicles. There's plenty of headroom, plenty of legroom, and there is an enormous amount of individual little storage areas that are already built into the van itself. 
for anything from if you you know wanting to have a clipboard so that you've got the map of where you're going through to any anything you want to be carrying you know a number of bottle holders etc the the interior layout is really well done and importantly there's a couple of hidden storage areas underneath the front seats oh, for security reasons absolutely yeah great idea people put a lot of the things in those and it, it takes you know hides things away from prying eyes is it actually divided between the passenger and the driver and the back of the van? Yeah, the particular variant I had well, what I call a cargo barrier, and there was a full height barrier in there between the, the front and the back. But if you're doing it as a camper van, you'd remove that so you could literally walk through into the back area. The type of improvements that you can get to it, does that include fridge, your bed, and things like that? Volkswagen supplies it purely as a base vehicle. Hmm. That's really just a shell. But the good thing about this particular shell is there's a lot of internal infrastructure that you can attach walls and cupboards and every, anything to that you want to do. And that's why the likes of a lot of manufacturers, such as Tracker and those, they, they really like these type of vans because a lot of the work is already done for them in being able to secure what they're going to put in there. So you can't order it from Volkswagen with camper van option. People can buy it and do it themselves or they can go to one of the manufacturers and say, look, this is the vehicle I want it to be built on. Can you do that for me? Is it then a complete camper? Can I stop, sleep, eat in the thing once I get tracker and that to do something with the interior? Oh, absolutely. You've got bed, fridge, kitchen, stoves, cupboards. Some even have showers and toilets in them. It's amazing what they can fit into these small areas or they'll have it attached to the outside. So you can literally travel in this camper van for 12 months around Australia. What are they worth? Ranging from about 45000 I think it is, up. The 4Motion system adds about $4,000 to the price of it, which is cheap compared to a lot of the competitors. And there's a lot of different variants. So you'd really need to decide which one you want, whether you want a long wheelbase, whether you want a high roof variant, all that type of stuff. But they're actually reasonable value. And um, what would it cost me to deck it out in a fairly standard package? Uh, look, you, you would be looking anywhere between $80,000 plus, depending upon the, the quality of what you're going to put in there. Bear in mind, most of the stuff that's done in camper vans is handmade. So it's the labour cost that kills everything. So you're talking 130 plus to sort of get one on the road. If you're going to have a, a fully decked out one, you could be talking yeah, 100, 100 to 130 plus, absolutely. Rob, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. This is Overdrive across Australia. Often when we're looking at a car to buy, there are a few things that are our top priorities. Rob Fraser recently took a Subaru Impreza for a drive, and here's his top five most important things. Firstly, when driving the Impreza, it feels planted to the road. It's compliant ride and dynamics being similar to cars costing many thousands of dollars more. Next are the impressive list of safety features over and above the five-star ANCAP safety rating, including the brilliant symmetrical all-wheel drive system, the innovative eyesight system, and vision assist features all designed to work with the driver. Third is the interior ambiance and driver ergonomics, with soft touch points everywhere for your elbows and hands. The overall layout of the dash is very convenient and easy to use. Next, it's packed with features such as heated front seats, sunroof, automatic LED steering responsive headlights, auto wipers and high beam, plus a whole heap more. Finally, the practicality of the hatchback design with flexible seating, convenient hooks and a low load height for luggage. 
The Subaru Impreza 2-litre S all-wheel drive is a touch under $30,000, plus the usual costs and definitely good value. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are again. We had him back with us finally last week, and now we have him back again. It's Brian Smith to talk some quirky news. Good day, Brian. G'day, David. Tell me about red light in city areas. Ah, oh, this steams me up, David. This story I'm going to talk to you about is more about our perception of what matters. So the headline is CBD drivers could spend more time at red lights under council plan. And the story is Melbourne planning to change the traffic signal phasing system to benefit pedestrians. And not just to benefit pedestrians, but to benefit the fact that there's something like five times as many people on foot as there are in cars in particularly congested areas. And they're talking here about one intersection being the intersection of Spencer and Collins Street, it's right outside Southern Cross Railway Station, uh, where something like 15,000 pedestrians cross the road per hour, just five times the number of people in cars, but cars are given twice the amount of time as pedestrians. So, so my take on this is, um, you know, Melbourne's plan to improve the way the city works, but it's projected forward as being CBD drivers having to spend more time at red lights. This gets my goat. But the, the interesting thing is that uh, a colleague of ours and, and the RACVC Senior Manager of Transport and Planning, Peter Katsudimus, he, he's taking the perspective that, look, uh, traffic light timing reviews are a good thing. If we optimise it, then everybody moves through the city quicker. And if most people are on foot, it makes sense that if we're going to use the infrastructure of our city most efficiently, we should benefit the people who have the least impact and move the most number of people in the fewest number of vehicles. David? So you really would like to write the news story with a positive headline? Yes, yes. Instead of saying, look, you car drivers, you're going to be disadvantaged, the car drivers are the minority here and... and, uh, it's not about positive or negative. It's saying that um, we immediately think in terms of cars and saying, what does this mean for cars? Why not pedestrians will have their wait times halved because that's the effect of it. I right? think it's uh, also shock horror sort of stuff. You you wanted to write a positive headline. You'll never work for News Corp. <laughs> that's true. I'd have to find some way to fit someone getting injured into this, wouldn't I? Or humiliated. One of the issues there is, of course, also trams, though. What sort of speed are we allowing the trams to go by? I don't think that should stop us. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that you want to make sure that really you not only don't serve cars as well, but you actually discourage them from doing it if they can avoid it. Speaking of trams, um, the international standard for the percent of time trams should be caught at red lights is about 2 to 5%. Oh. Uh, and at the moment in Melbourne, trams spend about 20% of their time on their trip at red lights. So there's a lot more that can be done uh, in that city to, to, I guess, make it work more efficiently. They had a graph there, the 43% of total traffic was through traffic, but I have to say that was on a fairly small area, which 
it makes it not surprising that a lot of traffic is through. But nonetheless, it makes the point, doesn't it, that within that tight inner core, a lot of the people that are on the street aren't going to a location nearby on that same street. Yeah, they're passing through the heart of a city centre on their way to somewhere else. So that's a bit of a flaw in the way the the network functions, or more importantly, um, how people are charged to use the network. So at the moment, we're pretty lax in the way that we uh, value accessibility like this. We say, sure, just drive. You're not going to actually be asked to pay anything. No one's going to ask whether your trip is important or not or whether, you know, you're carrying five people or only one. Uh, And and this is this kind of thinking around congestion charging that would say, well, you know, if we're going to charge people to come into the most intensely contested part of our city, then um, we should use a price signal to to ration that space. And someone who is just passing through the city may well say, well, look, I don't need to go through the city. It's going to cost me more um, and, you know, I'll I'll find another way, which would make a whole lot more space for um, people who need to be in there. Circulating traffic is also a huge issue. And I confess the other day, when I'd had difficulty with my knee and I was walking on crutches, I drove through the city to pick up a friend and then go out to a a cafe that was out of the city centre simply because of accessibility. And we'll talk about that in terms of disability transport as well. The problem was, though, of course, that I circulated. I got lost and I went round. and, And taxis and Ubers are people that are on the move until they need or they find a fare. So it can create more congestion that way that we should be trying to aim to get rid of. Curbside parking generates a lot of that circulating. Hmm. So the car's driving around trying to get access to car parking. One of the things that has been suggested is that we always wanted coordinated traffic lights. Perhaps we need to coordinate them to the pedestrian, the typical walking. Yes. One of the problems, David, in cities is that we... We manage what we can measure. And and so it's quite easy to measure the flow of vehicles. And and you may have seen um, those sort of uh, little rectangles cut into the road at intersections. And they're little detectors that detect vehicles and count them. And so um, if it's easy to count, then we tend to focus on that management. And so our city's transport and traffic systems are driven by the movement of vehicles. We, We count those vehicles. We look at how much delay they experience and we try to optimise their movement and minimise their delay. Ryan, as always, it's great to talk to you. Thank you once again for all your time. Thank you, David. Brian Smith, and we were talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to the Overdrive team, including David Campbell, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.